Hey everyone, and welcome to the Soylent Green Podcast. My name is Alyssa Hanafi, and I study soil and crop science at Colorado State University. And I'm Levi Johnson, and I just graduated with a degree in soil and crop science from Colorado State University. Yay, Levi! (laughs) In this podcast, we'll explore climate change topics ranging from the soil microbiome to complex ecological systems. And if you have no idea what either of those are, don't worry, we'll explain any heavy concepts. We're not experts either, but we want to use this platform to share what's happening in climate change research right now. At Soil and Green, our goal is to educate the general public to the hypotheses and theories floating around in climate change research. We want to invite you to listen as we pick the brains of our guests to learn how smart folks are trying to provide answers to some of the biggest questions of our generation. Speaking with us today is Eric Fairley, Vegetation Management Coordinator for the City of Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks. Eric is in the unique position to be working with the public and small farmers while preserving land within the city of Boulder. The city of Boulder houses 105,000 residents with 45,000 acres of conserved land and 155 miles of trails within the city limits. In 2018, the city reported that Boulder's parks hosted 6.25 million visitors per year. And of course, that number has and will continue to grow with Colorado's swelling population. That is a lot of impact on the land, and Eric definitely does not have an easy job. Thanks for coming and talking to us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Could you tell us about how you ended up working for the city of Boulder? Yeah, I started my career, well, I started as a child just loving to be outside, loving to hang out with the animals, birds, snakes, fish, name it. That passion brought me to South Dakota State University, where I got a degree in wildlife and fisheries biology. At that time, I didn't really know much about plants or plant ecology or just kind of working on land. I was just more interested in the wildlife side of things. And then I was lucky enough to get a master's degree in biology with an emphasis in botany, which led to every other job I ever had. Once you put that botany title on something, it seems to go pretty far. <laughs> and I got eventually got into ecological consulting. As a botanist, it was really important to restore our plant communities in order to bring back the wildlife that I was so interested in as a kid. Just a series of jobs eventually brought me to Boulder and Boulder Open Space and got a job there as a the vegetation management coordinator managing noxious weeds. Kind of led into this position I'm in now where we're helping to rehabilitate agricultural properties that are, let's just say, not in very great condition. And these properties also have a lot of natural areas in them. And so we're restoring those natural areas at the same time. It could be wetlands, native systems. So it's It's a really good balance of working with agricultural producers on agricultural land to rehabilitate those so they could be more economically viable, as well as managing the ecosystem in a way that supports and promotes ecosystem services, carbon sequestration, habitat for pollinators and native birds and stuff like that. It's a really cool combination. And the series of jobs eventually led me to this. So your love of animals led to a degree in botany because you saw how closely related or how dependent plants are on the flora? It's actually probably more luck. So I, <laughs> I needed a half credit to graduate with my undergraduate degree from South Dakota State. And I could have taken an extra credit and been more stressed out my senior year, but I decided to take this half credit course, which entailed me going home over the summer, identifying 30 plants, collecting them, pressing them, and putting them in a herbarium. That one little half credit course ended up getting me a job that resulted in my master's thesis, and then a snowball from there. You know, it wasn't planned at all. It was just this random opportunity that I grabbed onto, and it literally led to 
every other career since then. Wow. I got pretty lucky, but I'm glad it happened that way because, you know, vegetation and soils really are the base of everything. So it's nice to understand them and see them and how the world reacts around them and how important it is to manage those systems. Agreed. I think sometimes those serendipitous occasions that come up are the best in terms of finding some kind of path that you're passionate about. Absolutely. You never know. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of open space and why it was a unique choice for residents at that time? The website has a really nice timeline that goes from 1898 when essentially the members of the Bola community started purchasing land. And so they purchased the Chautauqua area through bond issues. And then there are a whole bunch of other series of conservation and purchasing that happened between 1898 and 1967. I believe it was 1967 when the city of Boulder residents were the first residents in any U.S. city to vote for a sales tax that resulted in the direct purchasing, management, and conservation of open space systems in the Boulder Valley. So it was very clear from well over 100 years ago that the residents of Boulder were very interested in conservation of the beautiful land that surrounds their city. It just accelerated from there. To tax yourself a 40 cent sales tax (laughs) in order to purchase and manage these properties is unique. It, It never happened before. Which I think it shows what is possible for communities who value those open spaces. 40% sales tax is not a big deal, even to the common person. Right. And not rich, bolder people. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's, I drive from Broomfield into Boulder every day, and it's pretty awesome to go through all these exurban rural areas on my way to a, a very densely populated city of over 100,000. I'm passing farms, I'm passing natural areas, creeks and ponds and wetlands. It's pretty cool to have that connection with the land and to have the city of Boulder surrounded by these open spaces that helps kind of control all the massive development that we're having in the front range. Like a check and balance. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a certain percentage of land that they're trying to keep into these open spaces? And also, would you mind defining what they're saying are open spaces? I don't know if there's a percentage. Two of the charter goals are to help define urban development through the purchase of open space. And if you look at a map of open space, you have the city core and it's surrounded by, well, green on our map because our (laughs) open spaces are green. So that has kind of shaped how the urban development can happen. And so we define open space as anything that's purchased by the city. It could be a conservation easement as well, but the land itself is preserved from development. And so we can't go in. No, well, not easily anyway, and sell off any open space and, and have it develop. Once it's open space, essentially it's open space. And so it involves everything from agricultural properties to ex-urban properties that aren't really agricultural or recreational base. It's just there to kind of help shape development. And then we have the Flatirons and a lot of Boulder Creek and South Boulder Creek. So it's, it's a range of all these natural areas and agricultural areas just kind of blended together in a ring around the city of Boulder. What I think is really interesting about open space history is the people that first preserved land around Boulder used it, as far as I understand, as uh, ecotourism. Like they knew that preserving the land around the Flatirons, especially, would bring more people into the town. And in fact, that's obviously what really happened because that's why people flock to Boulder because it's so beautiful. And I think that. It would be cool to 
carried that idea through to other towns that are developing being like, you know, maybe we don't need five targets. Maybe instead we preserve a little park and that's actually more valuable than the income you get from a Walmart. Okay, so the timeline goes like this. In 1898, residents purchased the infamous Chautauqua Park in Boulder, which at the time were alfalfa fields and apple orchards. With a federal grant, they purchased another 28,000 acres for only $1.25 an acre, which must be nice. In 1959, a group was formed to specifically deal with land acquisition. In 1964, there were plans to build a luxury hotel near the Flatirons, but activists, aka hippies at the time, raised small donations from the community until they reached the purchase price of the hotel and preserved it instead as natural land. And as Eric mentions, in 1967, Boulder voters made history by approving a half-of-a-cent sales tax specifically to buy, manage, and maintain open space. This is the first time residents in any U.S. city voted to tax themselves specifically to preserve land. This sales tax measure passed with a 50% majority. Today, the countywide sales tax that goes to fund open space is still half of a percent. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, 6.25 million visitors, I believe is what you just mentioned, right? Yeah, and that was in 2018. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Um, Obviously, a lot of those are residents as well. But during the pandemic, especially, the trail systems were so busy. And that is bringing income into the city. Pretty exciting to see. And then you have all the businesses spur off of that. We still have between the city and the county, there's a lot of ag land. And that's all producing food or products, whether it's for going into a restaurant or or helping to feed horse owners. Not the horse owners, but the (laughs) the horse owners. You know, that's all part of the economic drivers of the Boulder Valley. So Agreed, yeah. How does Boulder protect its natural areas while allocating access to all the various types of recreators? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are a lot of things that Open Space, City of Boulder, Open Space Mountain Parks does to help manage that. And, you know, with 6.25 million visitors, you can't just have those people just go wherever they want. And so there's a pretty good trail system. There's a lot of planning that goes into the trail system, where the trails go, where they're leading. There's a lot of education associated with staying on trail and the value and the sensitivity of our natural areas. There are closures. We have seasonal wildlife closures. A lot of those are for breeding raptors, like golden eagles, phrygianus hawks, peregrine falcons, all that kind of stuff. So we have these closures that help reduce the amount of visitor access, which can help them produce viable young. The city of Boulder implements seasonal closures to protect sensitive habitat for cliff-nesting birds, but also ground-burrowing owls, northern harriers, Townsend's big-eared bats, and to reduce the spread of aquatic invasive species like New Zealand mud snails. There's a whole team of very dedicated land managers out there on a daily basis managing noxious weeds maintaining our trail systems so they don't continue to expand or, or braid, manage our riparian areas, working with tenants, agricultural tenants to help prescriptively graze our native systems. So it's just a mix of so many great things and so many great people are so dedicated to the land that ensures that we're mitigating for any impacts that we possibly can have but by having so many visitors to the system. 
So this info is based on Boulder County, but in 2018, there were 25,000 acres of open space land being used for agriculture. Boulder County has a rich agricultural heritage. From the 1860s providing food supplies for the mining camps to the large wheat farms and beet fields of the early 20th century. Unfortunately, over the past several decades, numerous historical agricultural properties have been lost or are under threat due to increasing property values and development. Many local farms now operate under an agricultural lease, which they rent from Boulder County itself. Boulder County focuses on historic agricultural resources as a part of its overall historic site survey plan, and they inventory all of the buildings and all of the farms which are 50 years of age or older in all of the unincorporated areas of the county. The debate whether to preserve this production or expand development for those who are struggling to afford to live in this area is an ongoing issue. I also feel like the people who use the trails often are pretty good at recognizing their ecological impact and thus they stick to the trail. They walk through the mud when it's muddy, which is very important to do guys. And, you know, they keep their dogs on leash all because they respect the land that they get to visit, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely noticed that around Colorado in general. So how... Is open space dealing with the influx of people moving to Colorado and the expansion of suburbs and developments besides preserving land? Do they have any regulations in place? Well, we have the land system itself, which, you know, two of the charter goals is to kind of shape that urban sprawl, urban development. So just having the land in place is is part of that process. We have multiple land management plans. We have recreational plans, ecosystem plans, forestry plans. Um, agricultural plans, master plan, a lot of plans, but they're important because, you know, they're the things that kind of set in stone the goals and uh, the monitoring that's required to ensure that we're achieving our goals kind of helps us focus our efforts so we can pay attention to the expanded growth and expanded pressures on the land system and make sure we're continuing to move in the right direction. I I don't know if there are any specific goals like we can't have more than x number of people we don't don't have controls like that but you have to kill your firstborn (laughs) (laughs) so what is the plan for your department in agroecology and vegetation management for the future we're currently in a situation where there's a lot of energy around rehabilitating these irrigated agricultural properties that are currently like i said before not in great condition and you know we want to get them leased we want ag producers on them. We want those ag producers to be viable. We want these lands to maximize their ability to support ecosystem services such as pollinator habitat, native plant habitat, how much carbon they sequester. We want to make sure we're using our irrigation water wisely and effectively. And part of that means having good, healthy soils because it's going to absorb more water. It's going to hold more water. You know, so there's just a lot of energy in the community and for open space to make sure that especially these irrigated properties, are up and running and functioning the way they could be or should be. Do you mind speaking a little bit to some of the plans that you have in place? Like, what actions are we taking? Do you do timed grazing and stuff like that on your ag lands? Yeah. So one of the one of the plans is that, and this is somewhat contentious depending on who, but one of the plans is that the council recently approved the removal and part of that is lethal control of prairie dogs from irrigated agricultural properties, something that is a pretty big deviation from 
um, open spaces done in the past when it comes to conserving prairie dogs on open space. And they did this for various reasons, which I wasn't totally a part of, but it's really hard to rehabilitate an agricultural property in the presence of prairie dogs because they eat a lot of grass and they clip a lot of grass. And so thought was, let's, let's remove them from the highest priority and highest occupied areas and rehabilitate those lands. That's a big effort. A lot of these lands have been unused for decades in some situations. So the fencing system is shot. The irrigation system's not in good shape. The soil is not soil anymore. It's probably dirt. <laughs> um, the plant community is dominated by, well, it's either nothing or fine weed or noxious weeds. All these things are just indicators of really degraded systems. And so uh, by removing the prairie dogs in those situations, we're able to kind of jumpstart the rehabilitation of these properties. It's still going to take many years to do so. Some of these properties are not in great shape, but it's a step in the right direction. Again, kind of get at that. We want these lands managed. We want tenants on them, helping to manage those lands. We don't want our dirt blowing off into the neighbor's yards anymore. <laughs> uh, again, I did not say soil on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eric knows better. <laughs> right? yeah. And Alyssa, you mentioned time grazing. We do a fair amount of planned grazing. We use it for a lot of different reasons. One of them is you can use cattle to kind of reconnect the carbon soil loop, re-energize the biology in the soil using livestock. And so, you know, we might go in there and key lime plow, which I might have to describe that as well. Oh yeah, go Please for it. Please do. <laughs> key lime plow is basically like a subsoil. So it's got a long tines on it that slice through the soil. So instead of plowing the soil up and over and turning the soil over, it just kind of slices through them and it helps with water infiltration. Quickly, I want to touch on why water infiltration is important. Infiltration is the rate at which water gets into the pore spaces within the soil. I'm sure we've all seen a puddle disappear into the ground. In my home state of Florida, this happens quickly because the pore spaces are relatively large due to a large proportion of the soil being made up of sand. Out here in the West, we get relatively slow infiltration, which allows for evaporative losses and surface runoff of water. The trade-off here is that the coarse textured soils of Florida lose a lot of water to leaching, or movement through the soil profile and into groundwater, but not a ton of evaporation. In drier climates like out west, the predominantly clay soils have a much higher water holding capacity, but take longer to recharge because they have relatively little precipitation to work with. It helps bring water from point A to point B. You can infuse some oxygen in the soil, which can be good and bad. But what we're finding is when we do a key line plow along with compost applications, the seeding within those slits of the key line plow do significantly better than the areas outside. And so it's really helping us kind of hmm. jumpstart the biology within these soils. That's really cool. What Erica is referring to here is the idea that carbon is taken from the system and returned to it. This is a delicate balance. And currently we are taking more carbon from soils than we are returning. According to an online magazine article from Yale School of the Environment, soils hold about 2,500 billion tons of carbon as compared to the atmosphere, 800 billion tons, and the 560 billion tons in plant and animal life. Fun fact that most people don't realize is that plants get the majority of their mass from the atmosphere, not from soil. They get most of their nutrients from the soil. Plant matter is mostly comprised of carbon and reducing the coverage we have on the ground increases the amount we have in the atmosphere. And while it might seem like we have more than enough in the soil, the amount in the atmosphere has proven enough to warm the planet to the point of causing knock-on effects elsewhere, like we have talked about with the thawing of permafrost and subsequent release of trapped methane and nitrous oxide, two greenhouse gases that, while found in smaller atmospheric abundances, 
are 25 and 300 times better respectively at trapping heat and CO2. Just another reason to promote nitrogen-fixing relationships between bacteria and plants like legumes. According to the EPA, nitrous oxide remains in the atmosphere for an average of 114 years. N2O is emitted from agriculture, land use changes, wastewater management, transportation, and in the production of chemical fertilizers and materials like nylon. Really yeah. quick, if we could back up for a second. Yeah. I, I'm not an expert on prairie dogs, and I you know, see them in random places. I know they're native out here. Like, How good or bad are they for the system, or does that all depend? That is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> It's a big debate, right? <laughs> They're a natural part of our ecosystem. And I believe a lot of research supports how much biodiversity that prairie dogs bring into a system. For various reasons, a lot of these agricultural systems have changed. We've taken water from our stream systems and putting it on top of our uplands in the form of irrigated agriculture to make them more productive for agriculture. And what value do prairie dogs bring to an agricultural land system? I don't know. I can't answer that. I'm not sure how many people literally can't answer that. But what I do see is that if you have an irrigated pasture and you have some prairie dogs on it, long as the prairie dog occupancy isn't very large, the cattle do spend a lot of time on prairie dog colonies grazing that fresh new growth that is produced in those colonies. There's a balance there. You know, obviously you wouldn't want your cattle to graze those areas nonstop. That's overgrazing. Yeah. because um, then you have the the pressure of the prairie dogs as well. But so I, I could see that there'd be some value to agricultural production. But it depends on what the production model is. What are you trying to grow? What kind of land you have? What kind of water you have? I'm going to interject here and give a little background about Colorado water law because I think it's pretty unique. Colorado is a landlocked state. We're not surrounded by any large bodies of water, and all of our water comes from snowpack in the mountains. The water comes from the Continental Divide down through the rivers and the canyons and out to the eastern plains which is a semi-arid region. We receive roughly 12 inches of rainfall per year in the plains part, making water a highly sought-after commodity for the early settlers in this area who wanted to farm. Many early ditches in Colorado were constructed by miners to divert streamwater for their mining operations. Others were constructed by farmers who moved north from Mexico and implemented their traditional irrigation systems. Today, it is no longer legal to dig a diversion ditch and help yourself to water from a river or a stream, even if it crosses your property. Water projects, no matter how small, involve a complex legal process of determining which water is available to appropriate or use. The legal right to divert and use water in Colorado has been deliberated and defined from before the time of Colorado statehood in 1876. Article 16 of the Colorado Constitution defines the water doctrine known as prior appropriation, which has stood the test of time as Colorado developed from a frontier western state to the modern era of the 20th century. Since 1876, the Constitution and subsequent water court rulings have governed the use of diversion and storage of water in Colorado. The law states, prior appropriation shall give the better right as between those using the water for the same purpose. Simply put, this means first in time, first in right, meaning that whoever got the deed first is first in line for water use. This Colorado 
water doctrine has become one of the legal foundations upon which water is governed, managed, and distributed in Colorado until this day. Like if it's just an open space or something, you'd probably be okay leaving them there. But in the agricultural sense, you might want to maybe either try and relocate or Annihilate. take some kind of measure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a hypothesis about prairie dogs. And again, I don't study prairie dogs, never have, not an expert at all. But my hypothesis is that with development expanding, the prairie dogs have been pushed to smaller and smaller spaces. So then their populations are quite large for smaller spaces, therefore creating a larger pressure on the land. We're sticking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're definitely bounded. You know, yeah. we're open space has, I think, I'm going to mess this number up, 14,000, 17,000 acres of ag land. A lot of that is just dozens of 20 to 30 to 40 acre properties separated by roads and fences and streams or whatever it is. So yeah, it's the ability for prairie dog colonies to kind of ebb and flow with pressures is reduced. You know, obviously mm -hmm. we have some good predator populations still in Boulder, but generally speaking, it's not the way it used to be a long time ago. And one, one really important factor in all this is, you know, we changed ecosystems. It used to be a diverse native prairie composed of hundreds of plant species and all the soil biology associated with those plant communities. We simplified them to uh, generally speaking, non-native cool season pasture grasses. And so those systems are really good for productivity from an agricultural standpoint. But when you throw prairie dogs into the mix and you get the constant grazing and clipping of prairie dogs mixed with haying and or livestock grazing, that system kind of starts to fall apart a little bit, especially because, mm -hmm. you know, as you get the prairie dog burrows out there, that makes irrigation a lot harder. Mm. And so it's harder for the landowner, the tenant, depending on the situation, to irrigate. And so then the irrigation becomes less and less effective. And there's a point where it's just no longer worth irrigating. And then you're taking water off a system that requires water, but yet it's still getting defoliated or grazed by whether it's prairie dogs or cattle. And, you know, you can see it's kind of like a downward spiral. And that's I, how you get dirt. That's how you get dirt. <laughs> yep. um, so, you know, prairie dogs in those situations are not compatible. One of our goals is to figure out on these irrigated agricultural fields, that are not within the project area where we're doing removal and lethal control of prairie dogs, how do we have viable agricultural operations in the presence of prairie dogs? Mm, yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, it is. really. <laughs> I took a look at the notes from the 2021 City of Boulder Prairie Dog Management Meeting held in December to give a few more details about how the city is planning on managing prairie dogs, either by removal or fumigation from irrigated agricultural lands. First of all, I don't think anyone from the city of Boulder hates prairie dogs and wants them to be exterminated. This is a careful and calculated decision in order to restore the viability of these agricultural lands, which have had irrigation taken off of them. More colonies will be attempted to be relocated than exhumed. Relocation of about 40 acres is planned for 2022 if the funding is received. Relocation sites are determined by the city of Boulder to their southern grasslands if prairie dog populations are already below 10% and the vegetation there is able to withstand additional prairie dog activity. As far as the lethal control, the city uses carbon monoxide in the form of pressurized exhaust that is pumped into the prairie dog burrow. In 2021, Mapping of OSMP prairie dog colonies 
showed that 81% of prairie dog colonies occur on properties where conservation of prairie dogs is consistent with management goals. Therefore, they'll be left alone. 19%, however, occur in areas of conflict, and the focus of prairie dog removal efforts, either through lethal control or relocation, will be focused on this 19%. Other objectives of prairie dog management include application of sylvatic plague vaccine, or SPV, to approximately 240 acres of active prairie dog colonies twice a year. Installation of barriers to prevent recolonization will be built. Passive relocation to reduce conflict between agriculture, trails, and infrastructure will be built. Experiments will be conducted to evaluate sustainable agriculture in the presence of prairie dogs. And of course, continued management and monitoring. Was there anything else grown out here before you know settlers showed up? Yeah, what is the native plant community for Colorado? Variable depending on where you're at, of course. The Bowler Valley was mostly mixed grass prairie, xeric tall grass, mesic tall grass plant communities. So the climate of Boulder is pretty unique. The, the way it's shaped, the proximity to the continental divide, it gets more moisture than the surrounding areas. And so we have a lot of tall grass prairie remnants that you don't really see until you get back out into Kansas and Nebraska. It's a little different plant community in Boulder Valley versus if you go out east, which is mostly shortgrass prairie. And of course, you had you know the, the ribbons of green, the riparian areas going through, and a lot of uh, wetlands and stuff like that. But typically, those wetlands were associated with the streams. Yeah, so that, that's basically what it was: open prairie that were that was managed for a long time by the indigenous peoples through fire. And we have some game walls, I believe, on open space where they they built rock walls to run game down them so they can hunt. So there's always been human influences on the land system. So, So, Eric, what is your favorite part of your job? My favorite part of the job is blended. I love having the team that we hire every year. I wish it could all be permanent. You know, the crew, I don't like calling crew because it's so much more than a crew, but I don't have a better word. They're the ones who get everything done. I just just approve (laughs) timesheets and they get everything done. They do all the work. And it's awesome when we're doing this work and we see, I mean, you know, we are instant gratification society, I guess, but sometimes when you're doing this work and you see immediate results, seeing immediate improvements is just gratifying for everybody. Because, you know, some of our crew members are only here for six months. And so it's hard to tell them, yeah, do the work you're doing. And then in three years, you're going to see an improvement. So sometimes it's really nice to see that immediate benefit from the work they do. Sometimes when I say immediate, it could be, well, actually I have seen things happen within the hour. Typically it can take months or years, but it's just nice to see nature come back to a system. We were cutting some crack willow down in this miserably thick mosquito fold (laughs) wet grove once. And it was so dark and dreary in there that there were no predators, which is why there are a lot of mosquitoes. And so as we were cutting down crack willows, this is like, it, it was immediate, it was amazing. We were watching dragonflies fly into the new sunlight from the cut tree mm. and eating mosquitoes as we were cutting. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that was awesome. So could you go into a little bit more detail about what your crew does to manage? Like, what are your management strategies? Our program is pretty diverse. Basically, if somebody else doesn't want to do it, we do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so about a quarter of our job is infrastructure, at least a quarter. If you don't have good fencing, if you don't have good way to run irrigation, then 
you're not going to be very successful with having a irrigated agricultural field. And so we spent a lot of time making sure the fencing, the gate systems, irrigation laterals and head gates and all that kind of stuff are up and running. That's number one. Our program's slightly different. We spend a lot of time also doing some vegetation management. I'm trying to do as much prescriptive grazing as we can in those situations. We found that cattle, pigs, lesser, I haven't had too much experience with goats, but they can be a phenomenal tool for managing a lot of our so-called, okay, a lot of our defined noxious weeds, teasel, can of thistle, re canary grass, cattail, or a lot of species that can be very well managed with livestock. The well, goal of mine is to have agriculture be the leading force for restoring our ecosystems. And so by working with agricultural producers to start managing the vegetation and revitalizing the soil through plant grazing or bale grazing, um, that kind of connects the pieces, you know, so it's, you're connecting agriculture to restoration of the land. I think that's really important. A win-win. Agreed. I, definitely a win-win. <laughs> that's why we're here. Yep. And then we still do the general, you know, herbicide spraying and mowing and, and situations where we don't have access to livestock. We do a lot of soil health improvement projects. So getting in there, applying compost, typically that's a contractor, doing that key line plowing, which I mentioned, running water effectively, efficiently as we can to kind of jumpstart biology. We play around with different diverse cover crop mixes and perennial mixes to see if there's a mix that can produce results better, especially a mix that can then maybe be grazed off, giving a, an opportunity to the farmer to, to have some pasture that they might not have had before. This year, hopefully, we have some good success. We'll find out. It takes a long time. You have one success and you have to wait another whole year before you can do it again. <laughs> yeah. Trying some different warm season cover crop mixes that, in theory, will grow fast enough during the summer where it can be non-suitable habitat for prairie dogs. So these mm -hmm. areas where we're trying to rehabilitate the properties in the presence of prairie dogs, nature has shown that there is a path forward for that. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of places where naturally a plant community just explodes and the prairie dogs get dispersed. And so we have to try to mimic that mm. to figure out if that's a good way to restore some of these ag properties and get them leased in the presence of prairie dogs. I think that probably covers like our methods and, you know, the thought process. So just working with nature as much as we possibly can, paying attention to it, seeing what nature is doing and what's working for nature and trying to mimic that to the best of our ability. I think that's my goal and my path. What are some of the goals for you mentioned earlier, restoring some ecosystem services. Like, what are you guys trying to restore there? And what would be the benefit of those? I mean, soil is everything. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> We're biased. <laughs> You're factual. It's really important. And I literally can't call some of our properties soil anymore. It is just dust. Oof. And so just right there, if we can start rehabilitating the soil and those systems, they're going to infiltrate water better. They're going to store water better. They're going to filter water better. All three of those are ecosystem services. They're going to provide the opportunity for more diverse plant community, which can support insects and birds and other wildlife, as well as pollinators. They'll be producing more biomass, so sequestering more carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the soil where it belongs. And then all that is going to tie back into agricultural productivity. And so, in theory, if you're doing it all right and the system is starting to function better, we're going to be able to put more livestock on the land without going into the negative direction and producing more food and more products for the local community. So it's, it's all tied together. What Eric is referring to here in terms of a quote unquote negative direction are practices he mentioned earlier, like overgrazing. You might've heard this term and think it sounds like livestock are eating until the land is literally bare. In some cases this can happen, but more precisely he's talking about 
not only overeating, but the impact of too many feet, well, hooves on the ground. The compaction of soil, think squeezing a sponge full of water, reduces its allowance for infiltration of water at an acceptable rate for plant growth. Part of what makes agroecology so difficult is taking into account the different needs and growth characteristics of each plant. A lot of different kinds of plants can grow in a loamy soil, which is a fairly even mixture of sand, silt, and clay. Some plants can grow in a literal desert, some can grow in packed frozen tundra, and some can grow in nutrient-poor soils where the nutrient availability is very reliant on a healthy soil community of macro, meso, and microfauna. In every case, water availability is very important to the community because plants need it to perform photosynthesis, grow, and reproduce. Relating this to my point, if soil is smashed down, it becomes more dense, or its bulk density increases. The pore spaces between the soil aggregates, variously sized stable clumps of soil particles, become smaller and the surface tension of the water in the pore spaces becomes greater than the pressure it takes to move that water through the soil profile. If compaction is great enough, we run into problems like runoff, where the water doesn't even get a chance to infiltrate and moves downslope until it finds a place it can soak in. In agriculture, this happens with excessive plowing, and the runoff can carry inorganic fertilizer to water sources, which can acidify them or cause algal blooms, adversely affecting marine life due to creating conditions of low oxygen levels. Do you have a favorite plant? I do. I'm sorry that this is not a Colorado plant. That's okay. So, <laughs> That's it. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> it's lopsided Indian grass, or gastrum secundum. And we actually do have an Indian grass, a yellow Indian grass. I'm not sure if that's a PC term anymore in Colorado, but this one is, it's just cool. It's, it's. I'm looking it up. Oh yeah. (laughs) A really cool picture of it from Florida. I need to go find it. But the inflorescence of the flowers are secund. And so that means they're coming off of one side of the inflorescence or the stem. And you have these brilliantly bright yellow stamens that are contrasted by these really dark brown ons that come off the flowers. It's just a gorgeous plant and it forms like a foundation, really important plant for uplands in Florida and the Southeast. So hey, that's where I'm from. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at this plant over here, Lisa just pulled up a picture. I'm like, hey, I would recognize those. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun to collect seed from that. It's so easy. So, <laughs> so you just like run your hand along yep. it. and Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> we'll post pictures for you guys. As you were describing that lopsided Indian grass, it made me think of something else that I think is important to talk about. And that is something that I struggle with is that, especially it seems with botany, there seems to be a divide between people describing plants with the technical terms, you know, and it keeps it hidden from the public from really understanding what they're seeing. And I think that it would be really cool to make a dichotomous key that just uses layman's terms, you know? (laughs) Using citizen science to map rare plants to like see what's out there, I feel like the biggest divide is just in a name, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I've been studying plants. I don't call myself a botanist anymore, but I've been in the plant world for 30, oh my goodness, 30 (laughs) years. And every author uses different terminology as well. So when Mm. you go from one dichotomous key, a book that helps people identify plants to another, I have to go into the glossary constantly because mm-hmm. it makes it tough. I don't have a number for this, but there are multiple different words for the word hairy. Yeah, and, exactly. And they all have slightly different meanings. You know, is the hair shaped like a T and is it split? You know, every nuance of a plant identification 
has its own term. So I see where that comes from. But yeah, you're right. It does make it hard. And social media, for all the good and the bad that there is with that, there are some really cool social media pages out there, Colorado native plants and so on and so forth. That mm. Same with insects. Yeah. That just kind of seems to bring the community together because you have some of the best botanists in the state on these pages yeah. helping people who just like plants kind of identify them and what to look for. And, and they just want to learn. Yeah. So yeah. it's I think social media is a great tool for help kind of bridging that gap. And it, it seems to be doing that because I love being on those pages because I'm, I'm learning a lot. Right. So yeah. it's awesome. So Feel free to name drop any of those pages if you know any. <laughs> if not, we can just get them from me and post them later. <laughs> yeah. Colorado Native Plants is probably my favorite. Nice. And everyone, iNaturalist, guys. iNaturalist, yes. And it's gotten so much better over the years. I know my brother is a California botanist and he goes in religiously and enters in the correct like scientific name, which is helpful. But I should probably know this, but is that like a wiki for? It's an app that um, you can take a picture of a plant that you know or don't know, has your GPS coordinates, it marks it on a map, and then people could go in and ID it for you, or it could be added to collections for, you know, um, environmental analysts if it's like a rare plant. And it just uses the public as a resource to identify what's out there. The more eyes on the ground, the better. Definitely. All about citizen science here. Yeah. yeah and you have you have experts on iNaturals as well that are helping correct this and vet it and you know, make sure the, the identifications are correct and stuff like that. And then there's right. always conversations associated with some of these ideas. Yeah, totally. So, no, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. iNaturalist. <laughs> Were you always interested in botany or ecology? Were you always a nerd, Eric? <laughs> um, yeah, probably. This is a safe <laughs> space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all nerds here. Yeah, it's good. I wish everybody was a nerd, honestly. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was always, and I mentioned it earlier, I was always interested in the outdoors and let's just say animals, I guess, at the time. But it really took just these introduction into plants that just spurred everything else. It's, I could like fish and amphibians all I want, but I just feel like it's really essential kind of understand the habitat that they live in and how to manage that habitat. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about just let nature run its course. One, nature has never run its course. There's always been human hands in that at some level. Two, we have a system that's altered. You know, we have increasing carbon levels. We have nitrogen deposition. We have the presence of plant species and insect species and animal species that didn't evolve in our local areas. You know, so there are a lot of reasons why humans need to have very thoughtful management of the land. So I evolved over time from just liking the animal to loving how to manage the land for that animal. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll just never go back. I just, I think it's essential and it's a role that I think humanity will, I mean, with how many billion of people of us there are, you know, at some level we have to manage the ecosystem. We're here. We're not going away. We have to feed ourselves and we need to understand how nature works because nature knows how to do this and we need to learn from nature. And that's just been transformative to me to kind of take this path from loving that bird to loving the habitat that, that bird lives in. I just want to interject here for a second because this struck a deep chord with me because I came into the soil and crop science degree with a greater interest for the plants growing in soils, but I came out of it, as you might imagine, with a deeper appreciation for the potential of the soil itself. 
of course, the whole thing is a system and one does not function without the other. But I think management at the basis level is a key to successful rehabilitation, restoration, or regenerative effort in agriculture or quote-unquote natural slash open spaces. Yeah, I think that once you make being outside like interactive, once you learn what is around you, it makes it so much more interesting to like you go on a hike and instead of just like hiking down the trail, you're like, oh, that's that insect. Oh, that's that plant. Oh, that's that mushroom. Like it makes you care about what you're doing so much more. Definitely draws you in and gives you a deeper connection to it while you're exploring. Exactly. That's me on just about every trail. Oh my gosh, look at these plants. Oh, look at this. Yeah, we're very annoying to hike with. (laughs) (laughs) Look at those rocks. (laughs) So do you think the integration of urban planning in Boulder and conservation has been successful? Like, do you think other people should model this? I do at some level. What scale does everybody have to go to the scale that the city of Boulder is going? I don't know. Uh, Yeah, sure. I love that. But (laughs) I just drove up from Broomfield today on I-25. I think I did this a year ago too, or I drove up north and what a change. It's just the sprawl is huge. You're telling me that Boulder wouldn't be all houses if it wasn't for open space? Oh, yeah. And Uh, it wouldn't be that desirable to live in. Right. Yeah. Which could probably drop the price of the property. (laughs) It's such a cool system where we still have very high quality biodiversity at the regional, if not even the global scale for species. We have rare plants that aren't found very commonly at all. I found a gentian, a bottle gentian, along the South Boulder Creek floodplain a couple of years ago. First time found in well over 100 years in Colorado. And it's still on open space. That's awesome. It's a very disjunct range, and you typically don't find it until you get like to eastern South Dakota and Illinois. And so it's just the fact that you still have these intact systems is just testament to what open space has done. You have all these agricultural fields. And then, you know, because there's so much open space agricultural fields, um, I believe, I don't have facts to support this, mm-hmm. I think it makes it easier for the private landowners to have agricultural fields because it's not just being sold off right. to houses. Right. And so you have all this agricultural productivity that's, one, really cool to drive through. Mm-hmm. And then, two, you know, feeding into the local food economy. So, yeah, you, you have trail systems that I think I can go from my office to downtown Boulder without getting off a trail. Yeah. And I'm biking through riparian areas and grasslands. It's all connected by trails. You've got this ring that's kind of controlling urban sprawl and urban growth, which we are all, again, very familiar with around here. I just think it's a wonderful thing. And it's spurred open space systems throughout the front range as well. Fort mm, Collins has a yeah. great open space system. I just think it adds to their overall desirability, which I guess it could be good and bad because there's so many people moving here, but it adds to yeah. the desirability and the economy of the system. And yeah, I think it's successful for those reasons. I think that's important to mention too. What you alluded to is that because Boulder's expansion is limited by open space, that really has driven up the, the prices of houses here and that that prohibits everyone from accessing these areas because as we all know very well it's a lot of wealthy people who can afford to live there and enjoy all these beautiful spaces yeah and i think and i don't have numbers for this but it'd be worth looking into city of boulder does have a seems to be a fair if not a good affordable housing program so you know they're taking an issue and turning it into a potential positive i don't have the data support how good of a program it is but I know there are quite a few. Oh, I've applied for it. Okay. (laughs) It's probably hard to get into. It is very difficult. And I might cut this out, but I just wanted to talk about it. One 
It's a lottery system. Okay. But there's like different brackets that make you more and more eligible. To be eligible, you have to make less than $50,000, which I feel like most people do. (laughs) (laughs) And then a bracket that gets you closer to being chosen is you have to live and work in Boulder for more than 10 years. Oh, wow. So you could be waiting 10 years to get a house. But they do have it, which is cool. I did want to touch on the trail system here. Like I'm not familiar with the Boulder like bike trails as much as here in Fort Collins because I haven't spent a ton of time down there. Boulder, how much of it is implemented by open spaces or just by humans in general? Or is it all just natural and they're like, let's put a trail through here? Like the wetlands you're talking about, you know, I like to see a lot of cottonwoods and willows along these trails. I mean, there are a lot of trails been around for a long time, but there's a pretty robust planning process for especially new development. And a lot of times we'll actually move trails from the riparian area, move it outside of the riparian area to create a new trail and to create those buffers that, that helps the ecology of that system. A lot of planning goes into them. Design, you know, making sure that the trails are taking people at some level to where they want to go and see so they're not just making a social trail to get there anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. Making sure grades are accurate, making sure we're not going through high quality shrub habitat, making sure the trails aren't going along the edges of wetlands. And obviously there's some of that exists, but, you know, there's a lot of thought process that goes into it. And, and the trail program doesn't just build a trail. There's a lot of coordination with um, the ecosystem staff and agricultural staff and just making sure that, you know, we're, we're putting trails where, one, people want them, but also where they're going to be compatible with the ecosystem. How about any uh, wild edibles? Uh, do you guys have any plans for those or are there any that exist? No plans, but I think there's potentially a avenue for some of these irrigated agricultural fields that have prairie dogs on them, you know, if you can find the right tenant, I think there's a path for that. I just don't know how much of a path it's going to be, but yeah, sure. I mean, there's no reason why that can't be a part of the conversation. It's just, it's not in the forefront right now. Right now we have to get the property from dirt to soil. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe once it's restored, but there are a bunch of old like apple trees and stuff on open space land. Yeah. So I was thinking, I've just seen so much of that. And I wondered if there was like, you know, any interest within Boulder's open space to facilitate more growth like that. And I think it would have to be planned part of an ag production system. You're not allowed to go through open space and um, pull plants and stuff like that. Right. We wouldn't want to promote that unless it's a little bit more formal of an opportunity. Well, people know, hey, you can do that here because it's part of the plan for this property. But we don't generally want you going around open space and eating federal heads and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. And the City of Boulder Open Space also has a wonderful guided hikes program, too, that teaches you about all this history and the ecology of the surrounding areas, which is also really cool. Yeah, I probably haven't talked about that enough, but education is huge. Just getting people to be aware. When we were doing tree cutting along South Boulder Creek, I get a handful of residents who didn't like what I was doing. Nine out of 10 times, as soon as I explain what I'm doing, they're like, oh, this is great. Just education. And we have a really robust education and outreach program. I don't know what they're called anymore. Dedicated, passionate people that just love talking to people about the history and the natural world and uh, they're awesome hikes. If you get an opportunity to take any of those hikes, I highly recommend it. And it's just a huge part of managing an open space system in the middle of an urban corridor. Agreed. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite parts about those open space trails, uh, you know, that around here is it just almost makes you feel like you're not even in the city anymore. Like it's just so green and lush and beautiful. If there was one thing you could change about how land is managed, what do you think it would be? So, I don't like that you can't do this mentality. 
What grinds your gears? That. <laughs> <laughs> can't do this. Can't do that. You know, especially with, again, from my perspective, where I'm working in natural areas where we want to have agricultural production, cattle can be very beneficial to the land. You just have to manage them. It's not the cow. This is a very common slogan nowadays in the <laughs> regenerative agricultural field. It's not the cow, it's the how. And that is true. <laughs> cattle aren't bison, but they can be managed in a way where they mimic bison to some extent. And you know, this whole ecosystem that we live in, fire, bison, elk, pronghorn, prairie dogs, they all helped evolve the plant communities that we have in humans. So I get probably overly excited in a negative way <laughs> when I'm told you can never graze a riparian area. Really? <laughs> so bison never walked along a creek before ever? Uh-uh. You know, it's, it's not the cow. It's how do you manage that? And so I believe that we should have fences along our riparian areas, but I feel like those fences need to be open enough that you can manage them appropriately to improve the ecosystem that is being grazed. And so like a lot of our riparian areas are chalk full of common teasel, reed canary grass, crack willow, all these non-native invasive plants. I don't even think there was much scouring in the 2013 flood, which was a huge flood event along Boulder Creek. So there's no scouring, there's no grazing, there's no fire anymore. You've taken away all these ecosystem drivers. So let's try to put those drivers back in to the best of our ability. And I believe cattle can be a part of that. There's actually some research being done in North Dakota State. I don't have the information any more than that, though, about how can you use cattle to kind of rehabilitate our riparian areas. I see it on open space anecdotally where cattle get into an area and that vegetation starts to get managed. So the teasel takes a hit, the reconary grass takes a hit, and the native stuff starts to rebound. So these systems evolve with disturbances. So let's try to mimic those natural processes and see if we can make progress on rehabilitating these systems that need to be rehabilitated. Is the biggest concern there because maybe they are picturing the cattle just grazing, you know, indiscriminately without any pressure to move, like if there was a predator. But in this case, like you're saying, if we managed it intelligently, like you would move them. Absolutely. It stems from a time where we left our livestock on fields year round and cattle will go into those riparian areas and wetlands and just sit there and graze and munch and beat up the plant community and defecate in the water. Yeah. So that's where the control and the management, that management intensive grazing comes into play, where we're not letting them do what they want to do and forcing them to kind of have equal distribution across the land system. We have this one riparian area where we partition it off into three, what I call functional water gaps. They're grazable water gaps are larger than like a little stretch where cattle go in and get water. And so we just move them, you know, when they manage the noxious weeds in the one system and we get it to the point where they're not going to do damage to the native stuff, we move them to the next one. And then the native stuff rebounds and the noxious weeds take a seat back. And it's just paying attention to the land and making sure that you're going in the right direction. And there has to be more research on all of this. Don't have enough data. Right. Um, right. But ranchers across the United States at some level, really hard to find information, are doing this and they're doing it with success. It doesn't take much to go in the other direction, though. I mean, you leave them out there for a month too long or at the wrong time, and you can go back into the other direction. Right, and um, get dirt again. Right, right. So, <laughs> but yeah, we can do it. We just have to figure it out, and we need more documentation on how to do that. And something you taught me, Eric, is that using cattle for grazing to get rid of noxious weeds is great, but also another benefit is their hoof action and creating divots in the earth that opens up these bare spaces for actual beneficial plants to seed in Germany and hold water and things like that. It's like a little microclimate in there, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, 
some people want a more simplistic system for the ease of agriculture. And I'm, you know, some of that's just hearsay, I, I, you know, my opinion. But yeah, if you want to bring diversity back into a land system, you have to stress out the dominant plant communities. It doesn't matter if it's a tall grass. You know, some of the worst tall grass prairie I saw that was still intact soil and that had no fire, no grazing on it. And it was just this choked out field of big blue stem, which is a typical tall grass prairie species. This was in South Dakota. That field needed grazing and fire to help rehabilitate it. Whether it's a hoof action, the consumption or the defoliation of the plant, that opens gaps in the system, allowing for diversity to move back in. So if you don't have those stressors, then the diversity kind of gets snuffed out by the most dominant plant. Right. And so, yeah, you need those stressors. How much do you work with forests on like the trails up, you know, in the flat irons? I don't know. I don't think I've worked in the shade in 16 years. <laughs> Do you want to say how they divide it up? <laughs> we used to divide the system up. We had two people that used to manage the vegetation management program, and it's just a, an easier way to divide it up. We had one of those people kind of worked in the foothills community, and then I was working out in the plains. And we don't do that anymore because I have this new position where kind of focusing on the agricultural fields, which I think is good. I think it's good that it's not split up anymore because now you can have one person managing all the vegetation in charge of all the vegetation management, noxious weeds management through the system. And it's just, I think it's just easier to kind of get your hands around. And then you have different programs doing the actual management. So my program is managing the noxious weeds on these 7,000 or so acres of property that are more or less devoted to agriculture. So if people are interested in a career like yours, which is like, you know, working for a municipality, but also managing the ecology and agricultural systems, what advice would you give them? Be open. I mentioned earlier today where I took this random half credit plant class that literally, not kidding, 100% of the reason why I have every job I have today is because that silly <laughs> little half credit class that wasn't very silly <laughs> at the end. You just never know what opportunity is going to change your viewpoint or change your path or give you an opportunity. You never know what personal contact is going to open the door for you, or you never know what job is just going to be that job that gets you to the next job. Me personally, I don't think you should be stuck on, I want to do this. I still don't know what I want to do. <laughs> so, what do you want to do when you grow up? Eric? Yeah. One, I don't want to grow up. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, just be really open and get as much diversity as you can especially if you want to get in the world of e ecology or restoration ecology, it's really important to understand the process that a system takes when you start to restore it. And I've run into many people in the 20 something years I've been doing this that I'll be explaining to them, it's going to go through this ugly phase, it's going to do this, and here's mm -hmm. the phases, and they can't visualize it. And that's fine. You know, It's not necessarily their job to visualize the ecological steps. But I think understanding that is really important to know that it's okay to take a step back as long as that step back allows you to springboard forward. And if you want to be a wildlife ecologist, but you get an opportunity to do a field job, I would take that field job so you can kind of see it and see what it takes to actually manage the land. Just take your opportunities and keep diversified and be open to whatever paths show up and go from there. Wow, that is solid advice for anyone in general. Quick shout yeah. out. Are you guys still looking for somebody to help? <laughs> <laughs> we did just close those positions, but we do rehire every spring and normally hire three to five people. So yeah, just figured I'd give someone else an opportunity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's still one of my favorite jobs. We love having you. Yeah. How can we all be better stewards of the land? Instead of focusing on what you want to get rid of or what you want to kill, focus on what you're actually trying to do. When I first started this position, <laughs> 
I would drive around open space and then we have a lot of the problems I've been mentioning and my head would just want to explode. May, June, just noxious weeds everywhere. All I could see is the bad, so demoralizing. It just, you just want to give up. And then I don't know what happened. One day I just saw the land system differently. Instead of, I just stopped focusing on all the bad stuff. And I started looking to see what this land system had to offer, Mm. what the potential was. Don't get me wrong. Some of our land is so bad that positive stuff isn't there. That's (laughs) fine. But you can see that. But I'm finding opportunities everywhere that I never used to see because I used to always focus on the negative. So for me, it's about focusing on what your goal is, where you want to go, what you want to do. And a lot of times the land will tell you that. Don't fight nature, kind of work with it. Mm. And so when I do a site visit, I'll actually do a site visit with no intention. I just go out and walk and sometimes I'll just sit and I'll just kind of look around and I'll see a plant community that I never would have seen if I was just looking at the musk thistle. And that's where things start. Hey, how is this thing living here? Let's try to mimic that. And so just kind of opening your eyes, just taking a walk, seeing what nature is telling you and just keep on focusing on the good stuff and then working for those goals. And obviously that means you still have to manage the stuff that you don't want but you're not focusing on that anymore. You focus on the good stuff and they'll tell you which path to take. That's brilliant. (laughs) I think it might be important to acknowledge on the podcast, but a lot of people think that all noxious weeds are horrible. They just want to get rid of them all. They'll spray herbicide on them all. It's like a fight against these weeds when in actuality, they are a part of the system, especially in those in-between ugly stages that you were talking about. Like You're still going to have some Canada thistle, but maybe you don't want a monoculture of Canada thistle. But a Canada thistle every now and again is not the end of the world because they still help pollinators. They're still biomass, still helping the soil system. And I don't know if everyone is aware of that. It's also probably better than having nothing. Exactly. Exactly. You're kind of like in a tight space there because of the legal requirements to manage noxious weeds. But you're right. They're there for a reason. Try to figure that out, that reason. A lot of these species are very grazable at the right time of year. Cattle love teasel. They absolutely love it when grazed in May. They don't like it in June. They love it in May. There's some livestock that went down one of our riparian corridors they weren't supposed to. It was in mid-May, I think it was. And I was down there. I was going to treat a plant called cutleaf teasel. And I noticed that the cattle ate every single cutleaf teasel plant. And they weren't eating the grass. So that's telling me that there's something that that plant is providing at that time of the year that cattle needed. And so when we start understanding these things and seeing these things, you can start realizing that we don't want a field of teasel. We don't want a field of can of thistle, but they're there because something is wrong in those cases. And so let's figure out how to use them and make them part of the production system and suppress them at the same time so they're not spreading to the neighbors. But yeah, we're having great success with some of these species and just grazing them at the right time of year and kind of just making them part of the system as opposed to something you want to get rid of. You know, there are exceptions to those rules. There are some plants that are highly invasive. No other animal wants to eat them. They're going to do whatever they want to do, no matter how well you're managing the land. Those to me are priority number one because they're not a part of the system. Right. But it's going to take a step back to kind of figure out which ones you can work with and use and which ones are just bad actors and need to go. Right. Do you happen to know what it was the teasel was providing for the cattle? I do not. I think there needs to be a lot more research on hmm. what's accumulating in our plants, what micronutrients are accumulating in our plants, and, and what they're providing to livestock. Sounds like a homework assignment for me. <laughs> yeah. I did some digging on this, and while I couldn't find much, I did come across an article and a comment from onpasture.com founder, publisher, and editor Kathy Voth. 
The article, Congress Says Cows Eat Salted Weeds, outlines a remark by the Honorable Glenn H. Taylor of Idaho to Congress in 1945, in which he addressed President Truman to add the article titled Salt and Weeds as Cattle Feeds, published in the Lewiston Tribune to the official appendix of the record. The article, reported by H.J. Leshner, was based on the observations from a farmer from Grangeville, Idaho, named Ben Baker, who lightly applied a saltwater mixture to teasel, burdock, and other weeds, and trained his cattle to graze them. They continued to do so even without the treatment. From the article, quote, In my observation, there was a better chance to see the success of the salt appetizer on the teasel, said Lechner. This is a tall-growing weed, which, when ripe, has long terminal burrs. These burrs once used to produce the downy finish to blanket. A fact that seems to deserve special emphasis is that the salt flavoring made the weeds a preferred diet to grazing cattle. Bluegrass was plentiful, while the young teasel plants were eaten down closely, end quote. Perhaps this behavior could be passed down from mother to calf, but it seems they prefer teasel at least for its flavor and possibly nutritive value. It seems more research needs to be done on preferred weed species for grazing cattle. I did find an article by Jenna Kahn called Are Teasels Poisonous? that outlines the edibility of the teasel's young leaves, the attraction of wildlife like birds, especially goldfinches, and insect pollinators like butterflies and bees. Quote, teasel leaves can be eaten raw or cooked, or they can be blended into a smoothie. The root may be used to make tea, vinegar, and tinctures, among other things. Because it contains inulin and ascabicide, the root provides a variety of health advantages. End quote. According to WebMD, inulin is a type of prebiotic complex sugar found in the roots of some plants like onions, bananas, leeks, artichokes, asparagus, and chicory which stays in the bowels to promote the growth of healthy bacteria. And ascabicide is simply something to treat scabies. The short answer is that, once again, the evidence is unclear and more research needs to be done as to why cattle are ingesting the teasel. I'll post links to these articles in the description. Do you guys have any big projects coming up? Yeah, I mentioned a little bit just the irrigated agriculture fields that have prairie dogs that outside of the project area where prairie dog removal is not going to happen. At least I don't know of any plans to make it happen. And so a lot of pressure to get these thousand or so acres and that's dozens of properties back in agricultural production. So how do we rehabilitate them in the presence of prairie dogs and create a system that allows for some coexistence with prairie dogs into the future, but still providing viable agricultural opportunities for agricultural producers in the region? I don't have answers for that yet. Uh, like I said, nature has shown us some paths. We just have to figure out how to mimic nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's possible. You now we might have to diversify our model. It's not for everybody. Bees and orchards, tall vegetation that maybe gets you know, harvested for native seeds grow as opposed to hay. There are a lot of different options. It's just going to be more diverse and find the right tenants to help with that process. And that's a big project. Like mm-hmm. I said, over a thousand acres of land doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot when it's 20 something properties. Yeah. And so it's going to be a lot of work and we got to figure it out. And then each year we learn a little bit more, but it's going to take a while. So what's the most important thing you've learned through your experience? Bad at the first thing I'm going to say is <laughs> human relationships are very important. Mm. Everybody has something to say and contribute. They all have observations. You're a partner with everybody else within and without your field. I can't manage any of this land with, without agricultural producers. I don't think the world can manage all our lands without agriculture, period. So human relationships is huge. I think I'm better at the second one. I'm not good with the people thing. I'm really good with the land thing. <laughs> relationship with the land, watching it, literally listening to it yeah, and figuratively. You need both. Yeah. The land is the teacher. It mm-hmm. is. Definitely. We're just the observer. Yep. Awesome. 
Thanks for coming and talking to us today. Yeah, we learned you. so much. Your job is so cool. If people have questions for you or want to get involved, how would they find you? Eric Fairley. And then my email is Fairley, so F-A-I-R-L-E-E-E, so three E's, at bouldercolorado.gov. And I think that's probably the best way to get in contact with me because if you give me a phone call, I'll probably just ignore it because it's <laughs> spam. typically spam. It's yeah. the IRS. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, stay curious, people. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Eric. That was awesome. Thank you. I appreciate this. Bye.